Al-Jazeera Podcast. Hi there, Malika Bilal here. I'm handing the mic to my Al-Jazeera colleague, Kevin Hurden. Enjoy. It was a hot and steamy August in Beirut, 2015. And one of the only things on Lara Bitar's mind was the smell of garbage. It was everywhere. Lebanon's rubbish dumps are full. Every day, more truckloads of garbage are piled on top. That extraordinary snake of trash, I mean, literally, it rolls around the hillside like a river, but it is entirely made of large plastic bags. But rather than wade through it in the streets, holding her nose, Laura wanted to get to the bottom of it. We were working on the impact of landfills on people's health. Little did she know, five years later, she would still be following the same story when another environmental disaster hit her country. 6.08 p.m., August 4, 2020. There's been a large explosion in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, within the last hour. The 2020 port explosion became the biggest environmental story Lebanon has ever seen. And Lara's reporting that started out with a pile of garbage changed with it. We wanted this to act as a cautionary tale of how the government and different government forces can collude in a mass cover-up, and in this instance, a mass environmental crime. Then, this March, two weeks ago, she got a phone call. She was summoned by Lebanon's anti-cyber crimes unit. There was a chance they could force her to take the story down. Why was Lara summoned, and what does it mean for Lebanon if journalists like Lara are kept from reporting the truth. I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Lara Bitar, and I'm the founding editor of The Public Source. Lara, it is A real pleasure to talk to you. I love talking to investigative journalists about investigative journalism. So tell me about what you do and how long you've been doing this kind of investigative reporting. The Public Source is a very small, all-women-led investigative journalism publication that's based in Lebanon. We launched this project in January of 2020, specifically because there was a need for an independent newsroom, a newsroom whose editorial policies and editorial line is not guided by any outside political parties or political figures. Well, I've been reading some of your reporting, and I and I love it. I especially love the titles, Ecological Time Bombs, Emergence of Death. When you came out with those, it was two years after the 2020 Beirut port explosion, caused by ammonium nitrate, which was stored there. But in your stories last year, you also described a substance that's less widely known, which was 2,000-plus tons of industrial toxic waste, which dates back to the 1980s during the Lebanon Civil War. And this is the history that really grabs you. This ship just shows up in the midst of war and unloads thousands of barrels of toxic waste. It disperses into the countryside, and it really feels like investigators and reporters like yourself have been trying to figure out what happened to all of this waste ever since. Kevin, I would love for us to take credit for these titles, and I agree with you, they're fantastic. (laughs) The Ecological Time Bombs, this is a reference to a Greenpeace report 
and the merchants of death. This was also a reference to some of the reporting that journalists were doing um, decades ago. Now, as far as the work is concerned, this was surprising for us because we didn't uncover anything that was new. In this investigative feature, what we did is bring all of these different pieces of this puzzle together and explain to our readers why this story is relevant. The only people who were interrogated, uh, who were violently assaulted, detained, and who were very briefly persecuted were those who were investigating the story. So can you just very briefly explain the timeline of, of it started in in the 80s and then how that led to this this piece of reporting now? 36 years ago, over 2,000 tons of toxic waste was imported from Italy in exchange for $22 million. And those who were responsible for this uh, toxic waste trade were a militia at the time called the Lebanese Forces. Now the Lebanese Forces today are a political party that's represented in government. This was in 1987, the last few years of the Lebanese Civil War. The overall pace of combat was slowing down. Peace talks were showing signs of progress, but the hostilities did not cease. Militias ruled the country and they did whatever they had to do in order to secure funding for their war machine. So the waste comes in and then it sort of disappears. Some of it's disposed of, but not all of it. And there's been this long process of trying to figure out what happened to it because it's really dangerous. So the waste comes in, there's a big scandal. Some of it is allegedly exported back out in coordination with the Italian government. Some of it is detonated, some of it is sunk, some of it is buried across uh, different regions, in particular in the Caserwain region. And to this day, it's unclear how much of it remains, how much of it has been leaching into our water, into our land, into the soil. Um, All of these are questions that nobody is able to answer because the investigation was halted. So let's go back a little here. You were reporting this story in the context of Lebanon's 2015 garbage crisis, but then the 2020 port blast happened. The huge blast at the port sent shockwaves across the city, destroying many buildings and blowing out windows several miles away. And your environmental reporting became relevant in a whole new way. Absolutely. Coming out of the 2015 garbage crisis, we were working on the impact of landfills. And there was a massive explosion at the port, and we decided to shift the focus. And this is how this piece came about on the ecological time bombs. The blast was such a singular event for Lebanon. One of those moments where everything changed, but it must be difficult to move past it also because there's been no accountability. I would say so. We've done a lot of work on the 2020 explosion. Family members of the victims, they are angry. They believe that the ruling establishment, whether it's the politicians, whether it's high-ranking security officials, and even some members of the judiciary are trying to evade justice. For environmental crimes, uh, such as this one that we reported on, What happened 
in the wake of this toxic waste coming into the country. And would you call that a cover-up? Absolutely. That was our primary motivation for picking the story back up. We wanted the general public to know what the cover-up can look like in the case of the August 4 explosion. And just a few weeks ago, Laura found herself in a situation very similar to the environmental investigators she was reporting on. That's after the break. On Inside Story this week, Turkey and Egypt are closer than ever to normalizing their relationship. A decade of enmity is almost over. But what are the challenges ahead? Listen and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're talking to Lara Bittar, a journalist who founded The Public Source, an independent news organization focused on deeply reported journalism in Lebanon about her experience doing environmental reporting in the country she calls home. So you're doing this investigative reporting. It's incredibly impressive, but it's also dangerous. Because just a few weeks ago, on March 31st, you were driving in a rush to see someone, and you get a phone call that sets off this chain of events. So I got a call from the Cybercrime Bureau, which is a security agency here in Lebanon, summoning me for an interrogation. I was told that the Lebanese forces had filed a complaint against the public source. I wasn't directly told why they filed the complaint. But when we had published this piece almost eight months ago, the Lebanese forces published a piece calling us yellow press, negating all of the information in our reporting, denying the accusation, and uh, by extension, obviously, trying to discredit the work that we were doing. So if they thought you were going to be intimidated, I think they were incorrect in that assumption. You weren't necessarily playing by their rules. I think the assumption that they made was that we are a very small publication, and they thought that they could intimidate us, they could push us around. The Cybercrime Bureau over the past decade or so has been used to silence and scare activists or journalists or organizers. And there has been many instances where people have been detained for several days, held uh, hostage, you can consider it. And we later found out that what they were trying to do was uh, for us to take down the article. Mm. And this is what our lawyer was asked when he showed up instead of me at the interrogation. So cut to April 3rd, and there's actually protests. Before April 3rd, we had received an immense amount of support Different organizations, both local and international, had signed a statement defending our right to do the work that we're doing. I don't imagine this is something that they had anticipated or they had expected. A lot of media attention kind of reviving this case really helped us and allowed us to refuse to be summoned by a security institution, which was to begin with an illegal tactic obviously meant to intimidate and scare us. It seems dystopian in that sense, that there's really no procedure. It's a security institution technically tasked with investigating any kind of crime that happens online. Unfortunately, the Cybercrime Bureau has been used by different political parties and the state in general to go after activists who speak out online. 
Freedom of speech is enshrined in Lebanon's constitution, but people have been arrested for making controversial political statements to newspapers or on TV and radio. Lebanese law criminalizes defamation against public officials with sentences of up to two years for insulting the presidency. But rights groups say these laws are being used by the powerful against their critics. It feels like it's similar to the stuff that you've been reporting on for so many years. It's the same tactics. Absolutely. So you're very familiar with this this idea, I guess. You know, when we first got the summon, we felt that this was very much history repeating itself, first as a tragedy and now as a farce. Because back when the scientific investigators were looking into this case, they were also summoned for interrogation. They were accused of falsifying evidence. They were detained. And now... Years later, the same thing is happening to us because we are speaking about this case. And you went into this with a plan to get this summons transferred to a proper court? Absolutely. So we feel like journalists should take the stance and not just moving forward. There are some journalists who have taken this position in the past, but there are few and far in between. And you're not the only journalist who has called in about their work. Jean Cassir, the co-founder of another online independent media outlet, Megaphone, was also summoned. Is there a link here? So Jean Cassir from Megaphone, and Megaphone has been doing a lot of really good reporting on what's been happening with the investigation into the August 4 explosion. What happened with him was he was summoned by a different security institution, another security institution that does not have the jurisdiction to interrogate journalists, nor does it have the jurisdiction to oversee their work or monitor their work in any shape or form. I don't think our two cases are necessarily linked, uh, but they are definitely related under a larger umbrella of using security institutions to scare journalists, to uh, get them to stop doing the reporting that they're doing. Okay, so where does your case stand right now? My case was transferred to the Court of Publications. The case is technically dead right now, or this is a case that could take many, many years to come to resolve because the Court of Publications at the moment is not operating. So it could go either way. Either this is something that's going to be dragged out, or this is a case that's just going to be pending and uh, not have any resolution. And the case of uh, Jean Asir at Megaphone was actually completely dropped. Oh, So where do you think this goes? Because this is clearly a troubling trend. Hauling journalists in to answer for journalism is just something I don't agree with. And I think you saw that most people don't agree with. Does the government pull back or do you think that they ramp up this type of behavior? Lebanon has a very, very dark history when it comes to um, assassinations of journalists and prominent public figures. We had a wave of assassinations back in 2005. Uh, two prominent journalists, Jibran Atwene and Samir Asir, were assassinated back then. Hopefully, this dark chapter is behind us. These one-off intimidation tactics um, hopefully will not move beyond summons or maybe brief interrogations. If we remain here, I think we're fine, uh, so long as the state does not escalate. We're in a much stronger position today, but as independent media, um, obviously we face a, a wide range of challenges. The report that was published a few years ago 
shows that just 12 family dynasties controlled the media landscape in Lebanon. Mm. What is most essential for us as independent media workers and as independent publications, beyond these uh, one-off interrogations or these one-off summons, is to be able to sustain ourselves and to sustain the work that we're doing. If we are able to penetrate this media landscape in a meaningful way, if we are able to reach a much larger audience, I think this would count as the much more significant and larger victory. Well, it's it's why this censorship almost always backfires, because it ends up elevating your cause even greater. I mean, we're talking right now, so that's great. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that this resonated so much, I think, is because of the nature of the reporting. This wasn't some sort of a tabloid story about, you know, an affair or something. This is so important to the health of this community. I mean, we're talking about toxic waste that has been buried and hidden and covered up in Lebanon. And for them to try to tamp down on this type of reporting really does seem like a bridge too far. So where does the toxic waste mystery stand? Are... are you getting a handle on where the last bits are? Are people still getting sick? You know, the 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 problem with stories like these is that it's very hard um, to determine with absolute certainty that this community's cancer rates um, have skyrocketed because they live close to this landfill, for example, or because they grew up uh, next to these toxins. So right now, because of a lack of direct evidence linking these sorts of things. It's very, it's very difficult to continue to pursue this trail. You know, what we are hoping to do at The Public Source is to try to continue this conversation as much as possible. We have been soliciting feedback from our readers, from people who remember the scandal, from people who were maybe former fighters and were involved and this is how we're hoping to continue to, to work on this piece. Well, it's been quite a few weeks. I wonder, after all of this, how are you feeling now? Um, Aside from tired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very, yeah, tired. Um, frankly, we're feeling great. This allowed us to introduce uh, the younger generation to this case, uh, many of whom had never heard of the, this case of, of the toxic barrels. But what was very essential for us was that we were able to revive uh, the memories of those who were alive back then, um, and we were able to introduce this, this mass environmental crime to those who had never heard of it. So all in all, what happened wasn't, wasn't terrible, let's say. We'll see what happened with the, with the Court of Publications. And then maybe I'll eat my words. Who knows um, if this gets dragged out in court. But even if it does, this would also be an opportunity for us to present our evidence a second and a third and a fourth time. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Nagin Oliai, Khalid Sultan, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Kevin Hurton, standing in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producers are Adam Abuged and Munera Aldasari. Alexander Locke is our executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. A special thanks to Megaphone for sharing their audio. We'll be back. <laughs>